I didn't know why, but I, my heart was calling me somewhere else. And I think I could have stayed in theater if I had wanted to, but there was so much negativity there. And I knew that as a band leader, I could produce my own shows. I could put my name on the marquee so they know a woman is coming through the door. And it just empowered me in this way that made me feel like an entrepreneur. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. The last episode of the podcast featured Dr. Steve Iacovelli, also known as the Gay Leadership Dude. We talked about diversity, inclusions, and the lessons from LGBTQ plus leaders that everyone can apply. As promised, I am sending an autographed copy of his critically acclaimed book, Pride Leadership, Strategies for LGBTQ plus Professionals to be King of Queen Order Jungle, to my favorite recent review on Apple Podcast. That review is by Plucky Leader. So Plucky Leader, please send me an email at dino at al4ep.com and give me your address so I can send the book. I'm thrilled because today is the official debut of a special edition episode, a roundtable. I will have roundtable episodes from time to time, and they will feature two or three guests who are experts on a specific topic that connects to leadership. We will hear their stories, and then we will have a conversation about the topic. Today, we're talking about the connection between voice, creativity, and leadership. My three guests all started their journey as singers and performers, and then used their experience to expand into other areas. Alison Benny started out on the West End in London, then became a voice teacher who actually taught anyone how to sing, went on to coach artists and performers, and now, in addition to all these activities, she's also a leadership coach who works with a number of institutions and programs to help people become better leaders. Jenna Halstead is an acclaimed singer-songwriter whose career has been going on for well over a decade. She released multiple albums and has toured all over the US and in Europe. She's also a sought-after vocal teacher. After completing one of the top vocology programs in the world at the University of Utah, she combined her expertise in holistic medicine and yoga with her vocology training and created a unique program that helps people enhance their self-expression. She has found a special application for that in getting women entrepreneurs to enhance their leadership presence through the use of voice. Ruby Rose Fox started her career as an actress and then became a singer-songwriter. She released multiple albums and created an audience of over 10,000 fans in the Northeast. She is the recipient of multiple Boston Music Awards and New England Music Awards. She wrote and produced two critically acclaimed one-woman shows and has performed on a TED Talk. Her research into training performers on managing performance anxiety led her to study trauma treatment. As a result of that work, she founded The Unstoppable Performer an entity through which she trains performing artists on how to manage their nervous system using Dr. Stephen Porges' revolutionary polyvagal theory. Our conversation started with the question of what led each one of them to become a singer. We got very quickly to a pretty raw and candid discussion of some of the less known and less glamorous reality of life as an independent artist, and I'm truly thankful for how vulnerable and open they all were. From there, we talked about the moment when they realized that their expertise in voice and performance could actually benefit people who are not artists, and how they expanded their career from there. We talked about some of the connection between creativity, 
voice, and leadership, and they share some useful tips that everybody can use. And then, as usual, we close the episode with some great recommendations of what I call food for the soul. So enjoy this episode. It's a good one. I'm going to actually ask everyone of uh, my guests to introduce themselves. You know, tell me what you do, both in the arts and uh, outside of the arts. So, Janae, why don't you go first? I'm Janae Halstead, and I'm a singer, songwriter, and performer. Um, I also have a business called Inner Song, and that is um, my current platform of helping entrepreneurs and artists get aligned with both the internal and the external voice. Great. Ruby. Hey, I'm Ruby Rose Fox, and I started uh, the last decade as a professional actor and then switched to uh, becoming a singer-songwriter and eventually morphed that into developing one wo- multiple one-woman shows. Um, so I'm a musical artist of of various kinds, um, storyteller of various kinds. And I also started uh, something called the Unstoppable Performer, which is a trauma-informed approach to performing, um, which teaches you all about your nervous system, how it functions and how it works. And I mostly developed it to help my students and help myself as I was navigating the the challenges of being a performer, which are very much similar to the challenges of a pandemic. Um, it's very a very difficult life. And so, yeah. So here I am today with you. Great. And Allison. I'm Allison Benny. I run a company called Does As She Pleases. And it's I'm mainly a creative leadership coach. And I do lots of other things too. So my coaching is for women in the performing arts who are wanting to disrupt and want to make things uh, different from the way that they are now. And most of those women are writers, directors, actors, uh, and all of those things at once. And um, I also teach voice through a program called Reclaim Your Voice Confidence Through Song, which is a mix of vocal coaching and pure coaching, because I find that when people want to learn to sing as an adult, and they haven't done it since they were about seven, when the teacher told them they weren't the best in the class, and so they just stopped singing altogether, that there's so much trapped in there and so many limiting beliefs and um, just so much stuff around our voice. And it's hugely vulnerable for people to, to open up and, and, um, and reclaim this thing that they lost. And I also just randomly since the pandemic have supplied uh, tech producers to coaches who want to move their business online so I really do just do whatever I want. And that's why my business is called Does As She Pleases. Great. Even though now you're doing a lot more than just being artists or vocalists, like the journey for the three of you really started at some point, you were really focused on your art and your singing. And so where I would like to start from is if you can tell me, you know, when was the moment when you realized that this way of expressing yourself, the singing was more than you know, you, you wanted to be more than a hobby and it was really a calling. And, and what was that realization for you guys? 
I'll go. Um, I, I think when I came out of the womb, <laughs> I think at age two or three, I was like, uh, uh, this is what I'm doing with my life. I just knew. And it took on more of like, a, I want to be Michael Jackson sort of situation. Like I would see Michael Jackson and I'd be like, that's it. That's it. You know? Yeah. I always knew I wanted to be a professional singer and I thought maybe there'd be some sort of dancing that would go along with that. But, um, and then, yeah, I think like around 18, I was just like, oh, it's too late. You know, and I was like singing in bands in college, but um, I think I didn't really come at it seriously until I was about 25. So, well, my first experience was I was four, it was 1987. And it was, uh, I think, I want to say it was New Year's Eve. It was sometime. And we watched um, a musical on PBS. And I just, it was the first time my little brain could conceive that that is what you could do as an adult. And even, you know, I knew what a job was for the first time. And the music and the storytelling, like just, it was different than Sesame Street. It was different. It was so, it was like opera, you know, it like filled my little body. And it was actually a really dark, painful musical in a lot of ways. But it, my little body, like just recognized that there was something beyond, beyond, beyond in this, in this musical. And, and I begged my uh, parents for a microphone and I started singing in church and I have my mindset on that since then. What about you, Alison? I'm just kind of really leaning into Ruby's story because um, I was also four in 1987 and, and also was all about the musicals. So for me, it was Julie Andrews and The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins. And so the two of those kind of go, wait, this is the same person. Mm. what is this witchcraft um so (laughs) and realizing this was a thing that you could do and so I think I was six when I took my first dance class and I was I was big into dance class until I was maybe 13 or 14 when I started to uh, sing a lot more and I was a saxophonist as well so I was quite heavily into the music department at school and there came this moment where I had to choose one because they were both after school. So I, I, I chose music and then uh, wanted to be a teacher and had to fight quite hard for all my teachers and my parents saying, but you're so good at maths and accounts and physics. Like you should you should go do that. Go teach that. And I was like, well, if I'm going to teach, I'm going to get paid the same amount, whether it's music or maths. So why don't I just go do the fun thing? And then while I was in music college training to be a secondary school music teacher, my singing teacher took me aside and said, you don't really want to do this. This is not this is not what you want to do. And I was like, wow, it's not. It's not. (laughs) What do I do? And um, she said, go move to London. It might not work out, but it might. And there's no you know, there are plenty of people who are better than you and it never works out. And there are plenty of people who are not as good as you and they are shining stars. So go for it and, and see what happens. And that's what I did. I moved, moved to London when I was 21 and gave it a go. So the majority of our listeners here, uh, probably when they hear that somebody is a professional musician, envision some sort of glamorous life. Although we know that the reality tends to be quite different and especially at the beginning. Elison, I heard you mention earlier that somebody told you to be ready to see people who are much better than you not make it. 
and people who are not as good as you get ahead of you. So what I'd like to ask you is if you could share with our listeners what it is like in the early stages of a career and what are some of the ways that you deal with the challenges and some of the challenges that you face? Yeah, so for me, it was hard for me when I moved to London. I felt I had been so strong in who I was when I was a kid and when I was at uni and it was very like, no, I, I shall not be moved on so many things. And then when I moved to London, it was like I felt completely out of my depth and I would go to auditions and the only feedback that I would get would be, oh, I couldn't hear your accent at all. I don't know if you get this, Dino, where people think if you have an, an accent, you're immediately an idiot. And so I was auditioning for all these things and I'd go in with my English accent or my American accent because it was always a musical. And unless it was Brigadoon, nobody wanted a Scottish accent. <laughs> and and that's all the feedback I would get. It would be like, oh, couldn't hear your accent at all. And so eventually I just started going into the audition with an English accent. Thank you, Julie Andrews, for all of that coaching. And, <laughs> and for 14 years, spoke with an English accent. So that was the first thing that that I I kind of lost, like let let part of myself go, part of my identity go. And then the next thing, once once there was no accent to comment on, uh, it started to be you've got a great voice, but you're just a little bit too womanly or a little bit too curvy. So could you take care of that? Wow. And I was auditioning for very sweet young ingenue parts, like. Christine and Phantom and Cosette and Loomis and so here were these white men sorry you know who were telling me how to get my dream is how I saw it and I was very young and I thought okay cool I'll stop eating so I did and I lost a ton of weight very quickly I got very ill so very weak so that I couldn't even walk to the end of the street and lost my voice by the age of 24 my voice was gone and my singing career was over and I you know it was horrendous and I was terrified and I had no idea what I was going to do with my life but I you know went to therapy and started to look at myself and look at what is this it took a really long time but now the 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 reason that I work with women in the arts that want to do their own thing is that I don't ever want any girl to do what I did or to go through what I did it's not worth it and the more women are producing and directing and writing shows and the more stories real stories of women that we get to hear and get to portray the less of that will will happen yeah I, I'll go I'll go next if that's yeah, okay. yeah my story resonates so much with Allison's um besides playing alto saxophone <laughs> so like, uh, there's a lot of parallels, but I'll actually start earlier because it relates to my work now is that I came uh, from a evangelical Christian family with a Jewish father. I had a lot of trauma. My, my little sister died as a child, divorce. There's lots of just lots of trauma, um, unprocessed trauma, um, interoppressive um environment. So I, I came into my performing arts career with a really low self-esteem and a dysregulated nervous system. So my nervous system was 
easily triggered either into like a shutdown state or an anxiety state. This is sort of like a football player going onto the, the court with no muscle on his body or her body or their body. And my first experience where, you know, you're, when you're, when you have a dream as a child, you're going in with just so much hope and your eyes are open. I mean, you're just so like ready for everything. And I just, uh, my issue was I didn't really notice that I was different until I started to audition professionally outside of Emerson college. And it was usually me and another woman at the end of an audition process for a role. And it would be me and like a very blonde Aryan looking woman to play the ingenue. And I was the risk and they were not, and they always got the role. And I started to get frustrated and just like looking for mentors. And I, I was kind of told like, you're not an ingenue. And I was like, but I'm that age and I'm powerful and I'm strong and I have a big voice. Isn't that, how could I not be an ingenue? And it's really when it, it hit me that there was, I didn't know much about feminism at that point. I didn't have any framework to have, I didn't have a language to anchor myself to what was happening to me. I was just knowing that I wasn't feeling right about things. And then started to have some more negative experiences. One audition, I was accidentally thrown to the ground. Another uh, experience was sort of like just weird sexual stuff with the director that the other women, when I said something in a, in a back room, the other women were like, well, this is how it is. And if you can't deal with that, then you should get out. And that, these were powerful women. These were women. I wasn't expecting that to come out of their mouths. This was way before the Me Too movement, by the way. And I had already started like doing singer songwriter like stuff. And was experimenting with one woman shows in theater anyway. So I, I was like, I didn't know why, but I, my heart was calling me somewhere else. And I think I could have stayed in theater if I had wanted to, but there was so much negativity there. And I knew that as a band leader, I could produce my own shows. I could put my name on the marquee so they know a woman is coming through the door. And it just empowered me in this way that made me feel like an entrepreneur and through that process I had to heal my own sort of childhood trauma and insecurities because you have to do so many things as a as an entrepreneur which is what a singer songwriter is in 2021 so yeah I felt like I feel like I talked too long yeah that's good <laughs> Janae that was great yeah I think for me, it's mostly been, my struggles have really been internal. Um, I mean, I think everybody would sort of say the same thing, but I just had such terrible self-esteem uh, growing up. And um, I grew up in a very poor area of uh, Spokane, Washington, and experienced uh, abuse when I was a child, and, and but had this like through my, even through like my high school experience, even though I wasn't like, I had this thing in the back of my head, like, I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to be a performer. I'm going to be a pop star. I just was like on that wheel in my brain. And then when I was 18, I was like, I want to go to a, a, 
a music pop music college. And I'm a little bit older than you ladies. And I, uh, I just didn't like know those existed. I didn't know that like Berkeley um, College of Music existed. So I ended up going to Catholic University because I got a full ride in my hometown. And um, that was, you know, pretty damaging for me as far as like, trying to fit in classical voice. And I was also doing music education. And it was just like, everywhere I turned, it was like, no, 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 no. Like everything you're doing is, you know, wrong, even the way you're singing is wrong. And I was just, I think too much of a wild card for a small Jesuit school and with a small music department. And I was, so I started singing in rock bands on the side and like hanging out with all the stoners and like, um, so I was singing like professionally basically three or four nights a week. And then also trying to have like a classical, you know, I don't want to say career cause that's not what you're doing, but you know, doing classical training during the day. And it was just, you know, like the feedback was so negative around the classical studies. And I ended up uh, dropping the major junior year. And then just because of this, you know, the experience, how negative that was, I just, I kind of shut down like my junior year and I almost stopped singing altogether. Like there was just a lot of I don't know, trauma around classical training, like it was again, it went against everything that like I intuitively understood about my own singing process and my body. And um, so it didn't make any sense at all to me. And I got out of college and kind of moped around in Seattle for like four years, but still wanted, but still had this like drive, this insatiable drive to do this thing. And then all of a sudden I found out about song school in Lyons, Colorado, which is a songwriting camp for adults. And I went and I was like, all oh, these adults sing their own music and make their own music. And it was also around the time like Sean Colvin came out and Patty Griffin, you know, put out living with ghosts and it was all my head just like blew open. I was like, I can do this myself with a wooden instrument you know I can write songs and express myself and so that started me down that path when I was 25 and um and then that was just a process like of really since that day it's been since that time of of being you know that age it's it's just been really a process of facing my own insecurities and my own fears around being seen because um I, I knew that any challenges, I mean, it's hard enough just being in the industry, period. But I knew a lot of it, a lot of my challenges were around just being out there. And, you know, I was hiding. I was like in hiding in plain sight and facing just a lot of internal terror. So that's how I started with Song. That was fantastic. And I do really appreciate the vulnerability. Uh, you know, the three of you are incredibly accomplished. And I think that some of the people who have worked with you or, you know, that have seen you perform would be quite surprised about hearing this side. But I want to tap into something that Janae started mentioning, which is her work within your song. And it's the fact that at some point, as you were doing this work, you started realizing there was something more than just the performing or the music. 
you know, and then you you got sort of an impetus, whether it is the allyism for you to decide to coach women to do something more. Janae, as you mentioned, the work within her song, or Ruby, your work on the polyvagal theory. So take me back to that moment. What was it like to realize that you wanted to expand, that there was really an opportunity to create something even more powerful and meaningful through your experience as artists? We'll jump ahead about 10 years. There's a whole lot of stuff <laughs> that happened in between. Um, but in 2016, I was working as a IT project manager in a biomedical research facility. I call good ballerinas. <laughs> and um, uh, we were moving into a new building and the Queen was coming to open it. Sure, uh, that happens all the time in England. Um, so <laughs> uh, for part of the opening ceremonies, someone was putting together a choir and I hadn't sung for years. I'd tried a couple of times to join an amateur choir, but it was so painful, not painful in the uh, physical sense, but emotionally for me to come to terms with what my voice was now. You know, 10 years after I'd left university, even longer, and I just, I didn't enjoy it. So, but you know, it's the queen. It doesn't actually happen every day. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go and see what this is. And we, and we did this thing. And then from there, somebody said, oh, would you conduct a regular choir? So I started doing that. And that was terrifying because I hadn't, I had trained to do that at, at college, but I hadn't done it for years. And then uh, from there, people at work started asking me for, private singing lessons, which I, I did, and realized that actually it wasn't really about the singing. It was about bravery and vulnerability and letting go of, of old beliefs. And then just people just started asking me to do stuff, asking me to do talks, asking me to run kind of compare live music nights and run trivia nights and just sort of just be at the front which I hadn't done for a really long time and I didn't know that I could do. And then we had a work, uh, a team podcast that I, uh, that I did as well, where I was interviewing people and just all this stuff that I thought I had left behind. But when you're the creative one in a very technical place, people just go, oh, you do that, you're creative. So I was kind of forced to step up. And uh, from there, heard about coaching and then went to train as a, as a coach. And just all these little pieces of saying yes and saying yes and saying yes and realizing all of this stuff that I had been through and all of this training that I had had was still somewhere within me. And when I was training to be a coach, often we talk about this, what is it you can't be with? And so often that people in those courses were saying, I can't be with being seen, being heard, speaking up, I can't be with my voice, I can't be with being loud, all of this sort of theme. And that's when I realized that there was there was work there for me to do combining both. Yeah. Amazing. So awesome. Um, I'll go. Yeah. Is that, that's okay. I think the, the seed of what I developed finally in The Unstoppable Performer started at the very beginning of my musical journey at open mics. I could barely play music. I had I knew like five chords. I didn't sing in college. I studied 
just pure acting because I couldn't stand musical theater as an adult. And as I sat at these open mics, I watched singer-songwriters betray themselves in the most horrific way for an acting student because I was just trained to hold my presence, to walk on stage and command charisma. And I had this like almost, I'm a sort of like uh, a fighter character when I, for, for other people and myself. And I was like, these are brilliant songwriters. They have amazing songs. They just, the only reason that person is not known is because they're just not owning their voice and their space and going on stage and being like, this song's like kind of sucks. So like, I hope you like it and just stuff like that. And I was like, no one knows you're not a genius. No one knows you're not brilliant until you tell them you're not. Mm -hmm. Until that point, people are projecting their best self onto you. Actually, you don't know this like sunshine that's actually on you (laughs) when you're on stage And then I went on to have a career in music and performing, and I started to teach a little bit, mostly women who wanted to sing rock songs, but they had a lot of trauma. And weird stuff would happen in our voice lessons because I think I naturally had some, you know, I was just um, intuitive and I would be very connected to their energy. So when they got, when they would shut down, I would notice. And when they would get anxious, I would, sometimes they would tell me and sometimes I would have to really keep checking in with them. But it was very clear to me, like Allison said, that there's, um, there's a lot there. There's a lot more to the voice than just singing. And that um, my sort of aha moment was a little girl that I was working with who who could not um, sustain pitch of any kind. And it was frustrating. I kept like playing a note and then having her sing a note. Sorry, there's a piano here. Um, (laughs) And then she would sing the note, I'd play it. And it was like, I could feel both of our nervous systems getting activated. She was really young and getting frustrated. And I was really young and getting frustrated. Just kidding. Um, So I asked her to breathe and take her hands out of her pockets. And she didn't want to, but she did anyway, because I asked her to. And then I asked her to sing again. It wasn't the best, but she she like tucked them right back in. And then she took them out. And she ended up singing. After I got her body and her nervous system to calm, she could sing on pitch. And I was like, that is, I remember walking out being like, that's crazy. This thing just happened. And it was like, because it went from really bad to really good, really fast. And so fast forward years later, I'd been using a lot of my acting technique with my voice students because it helped them sing. And a friend of mine who was a therapist uh, introduced me to polyvagal theory, which fit like a glove to the acting work of this coach named Patsy Rottenberg, who has three zones of energy, which I was already working with and I already knew worked. And so I finally had some scientific validation for this magical system that I had been experimenting and playing with. And I was like, 
this is true. I like my, my body was just like, I've like skipped home. I was so excited that there was finally, um, there was finally some validation to my, my truth that it wasn't just like airy fairy, like energy, like so much of, of this stuff can become like, I, I grew up in a cult, so I, I'm very like wary of, um, getting too excited by, you know, just people who want to sell you snake oil. And I felt so excited to find polyvagal theory because I, I really felt like this is a real tool that people need to know to regulate their nervous systems as a performer. And that passion kind of like spearheaded everything I did more just because I felt so enamored by it and um, excited by how effective it was in practice. What about you, Jenna? That was amazing. Yeah. And um, let's see, where, where does this, where does this transition? I'm trying to figure out. I remember kicking around Boston in like 2009 when I moved there and I was like, probably I, I had been um, on the side sort of in the closet studying um, healing modalities for probably I don't know, at that point, like 10 years. And it was my secret life. I was studying energy healing and it was stuff that was way out there. And I could not figure out how to bridge these two worlds. So, you know, it was like I was a witch and then in the, you know, on the weekends or whatever. And um, I also wasn't integrating like the things I was learning. I was still like, oh, it's all hands-on energy healing and blah, blah, blah. But I kept, like, I remember I was walking around the streets of Boston being, like, internal voice, heart heart voice, like, what is it that I do when I sing and what I, when I'm my, at my best, like, what is this process that I'm doing? And I really started to think about, like, the heart as the communicator, the heart as the authentic communicator. And... So I was like inner, you know, I literally was like kicking around the business name, like song, song, you know, and just trying to figure out how I could like teach people what I was doing when I was at my best. But I also knew there was this whole other thing going on behind the scenes where I was afraid to be seen and I wasn't really stepping up to my full potential as a performer. I wouldn't go out to open mics. I was like, you know, I was really hiding in a lot of ways. And then but I knew I had something as a singer and a performer. I knew there was an, it, I, I don't want to say authentic, but I knew there was some, some place I was coming from that was from a deep, like healing space. And I, and I also realized like my favorite singers were people who I felt that they were moved by, like their soul was just coming through. And like Nick Cave for me is just like, the dark prophet and he could just move me like when I would hear him. And so I wanted to share that and teach that. And I was going through my own process of learning how to uncover that. And so fast forward, I had, heard, I, got, I came across this book called the singing cure, this guy, Paul Newham. And it was, um, he was the student of this guy, um, I think his name was Wolfowitz, but I don't remember his first name. And he was in World War One, 
in the trenches. He, he carried the cots of the guy. He was a cot carrier for these men who were being like shot on the field. And he was traumatized by this whole thing. And he went into like hospital afterwards and was in psychosis. And, you know, they did have medication back then was horrible. And he just started like screaming the sounds of the, the, that he was hearing, he couldn't get them out of his head. And so he just started like, you know, screaming these sounds and, and he kind of didn't stop. And what he found was like, he didn't lose his voice and he also healed his, he healed his psychosis. He healed his body because he literally got it out of him. And so that book for me was like hugely pivotal. It changed my life because it, I was like, that's what I was convinced that there was something about emotionality and getting that out that would heal people. And so around that time, I was also teaching young children and I would run into their parents and their parents would be like my age. And they're like, I wish I sang, I wish I could sing. Like I, but I was told that the age of eight, I was hearing this over and over eight, nine, 10, 11, that, um, you know, they were in the choir and the choir teacher told them to shut up you know, or that they weren't a good singer, they needed to pipe down, they needed, and it literally like locked up this center, this, this fifth center. And I was just like, this is so weird, you know? So that took me to what I thought was going to be the next step of this path that I thought would like figure, I would figure everything out if I went to vocal science school. So I went to um, the University of Utah to study with the premier vocal scientists in the United States. And I really there didn't learn anything I thought I was going to learn. It had nothing to do with like, you know, voice theory or, you know, teaching theory. It was really the hardcore science. But in that, I, I learned so much about the apparatus, the vocal folds, Ruby, you were talking about, you know, the nerves. And I, I think it's so interesting, like, when someone has a, a disease, it actually shows up first in the vocal folds. And I think that that is so tied to like, that, um, that tree, you know, the, the, just, you know, that the nerves innervate through the vocal folds. So if someone has an autoimmune disease, it will show up there and this sort of fluttering will show up. So like, our, our nerves are, you know, innervating through the folds. And um, so anyways, yeah, I, I, coming out of that, I went into women's studies and I was three years in a women's studies program. And I kind of just, I found that like, I, there was something there, the women were still shut down, even though they were doing this profound work, there was something sort of here that was, you know, they weren't making a connection with the voice. So I started taking on these women as students and, um, and finding that once they sort of unlocked this and also unlocked the navel, it was a totally different person. It was like, you know, you could see in the energy system, there was almost like a darkness in the, in the aura. And then when they unlocked the, the fifth chakra or the voice, they bloomed as individuals. So, um, yeah, so that's what really launched inner song and 
I don't know if I missed some, some part of my connection with the story, but yeah. So I guess like where, where it came out, that was really realizing that through the vocal science was that everybody could sing that there's really only a 0.2% of the population that's literally a medically tone deaf. And that, um, that the fact that we're putting people on a pedestal, you know, and that only some people are born to sing and others aren't was just like this terror, this narrative that was completely false. And um, so that's, I'm on a path to like kind of deconstruct that. That's great. So hopefully people listening have figured out that even though all the work that Alison, Janae, and Ruby are doing started from a place that related to the arts, if you think about the challenges that they help the people that they work with, those are challenges that to different extent we all face in our everyday life. And so I'm going to ask him if you have like a couple of tips for somebody, you know, whether it is somebody who wants to step on stage or somebody who has to go and ask for a raise for their boss or somebody who just wants to be seen more at work or, you know, what are some techniques or ideas or suggestions that you could have for them? So for me, when I lost my voice, I, I did go to a speech therapist to relearn how to breathe, which is the thing that we all take for granted. It's like so many people would just laugh at me and go, I think I've got breathing covered you don't <laughs> you know it's so the way we do it and the way that we live our lives these days is so all of our breath is up I'm this is a podcast I can see myself on video you cannot all see me but if your your shoulders are raised and everything's very tight and you're breathing kind of in your chest and the diaphragm which is what controls your breath and what brings the air into the lungs is so far down in your abdomen that's where your breath starts is right down there under the belly button and so we're living our lives holding our breath because that's our natural state of fight or flight so not getting enough oxygen and so really that that's the place to start is to breathe and to chill out and to relax and to support yourself with that breath you know I can as I'm talking I can hear myself my vocal fry coming in mm -hmm. if anyone wants to write in about that so sorry because as I'm talking about it I can feel myself getting stressed so start from breath so the work that I do in terms of teaching performers how to perform it's totally related to leadership in every way. So one thing that I tell adults and kids is to turn on their, I'm a Jew, but turn on their Christmas tree, which is to signal cues of safety to others when you're in a stressful situation, even if your body is not completely feeling, if you start to be a little bit activated Because what kicks in is what happens to actors is that your body is taking cues from your muscles and your physical aperture about what nervous state you're in. So, and before I tell you the exercise, that the principle of all of this is that the nervous system is the foundation of leadership and that in cases of parenting, 
uh, being someone's boss. So anytime there's a hierarchy or if you're on stage, your nervous system is signaling to other people what their nervous system should be. And that's why kids get distressed when their parents upset. That's why if somebody's on stage seems distressed, the whole audience gets distressed. It's a catching force, but it's all, it also means that you have incredible power. So my advice for somebody maybe in business who was going into a situation where they needed to hold leadership, my first thing would be to roll the shoulders up and back. So the first thing that happens in a, in a collapsed dorsal vagus shutdown response is your whole body will sort of go in. So the first thing is just to open and that may cause a little bit of activation at first and then to Bring your awareness down to your belly button and to your to your belly and to the area in which your diaphragm lives and just let it relax and open. That can take a little while to feel okay when there's a lot there. So just stabilize that. And then finally, after you do that, I, I ask people to just just give me a little firmness in their in their upper cheeks. So just warmth. So you're signaling warmth. So you're signaling power, warmth, and um, openness and warmth, um, which are signals of safety, but they're also signals of leadership. And the other thing is you don't have to be a leader to do this. You could actually be the person applying for the job. It's a way to have a little bit control of your body, even when you're not feeling so powerful that day. Yeah. Yeah. So I call, that's the Christmas tree exercise. Yeah, and, and I love what you're saying because it can be something, you know, if you are in a moment of crisis and there's a team, if, if the leader in the room is projecting crisis, that reflects in the whole team. But you can also be the team member who shifts the energy in the room, right? A hundred percent. And oh, just one fun fact is that people think that a, adrenaline is like, you know, people, Adrenaline is like a hormone for running, but it's actually a catching hormone. So if you're a little bit activated and somebody else is a little bit activated, all audiences are activated because they're excited to see you. But adrenaline causes you to feel what another person is feeling. So if somebody, they've done studies on it. And if somebody is really angry and upset, then you'll get angry and upset. And if somebody is feeling warmth and relaxed, you get warmth and re- you feel warm and relaxed too. So this, especially when you're in a, like a boardroom or a meeting where things are starting to get heightened, you actually have even more power there because you have adrenaline in the room, which means that you can shift them even easier into a state of safety where everyone can feel a little bit more safe with each other. That's amazing. I, one of the most powerful tools I think I've gathered in the last few years is navel activation. So it's called the Dantian. And it's, if you take two fingers below the um, belly button, you know, two fingers below there, and you just pull, you pull that little center up and kind of in, and you activate that. And so I'll, for example, I'll talk without, here I am without an activated navel. And I'm speaking from this place right here. Here I am with an activated navel. And it's just a totally different presentation. 
there's a lot of confidence in that. And it's kind of one of the main things I'm teaching people. And I just, I find that it helps people not only like strengthen the voice, but it also bypasses sort of emotionality in communication. So it just sort of, it's like a beeline direct, like communication style. And um, it's really powerful. And that, and I'm going to cheat a little bit here because uh, I've had conversation on this topic with Janae outside of the podcast. Obviously, that is something that you do with women entrepreneurs, right? And that is impacts mm -hmm. what they do and the way they present it. Uh... Absolutely. It's that little tool has like literally changed people's positions at work, you know, because they start coming in with a, a totally different leadership skill and style. And all of a sudden, the person that was the wallflower you know, that it was in the background is, is and people are like, who are you? Where have you been the last like, you know, year? So it's pretty amazing. Well, that's great. Is there anything else that you guys would like to share that people can take with you or think about it as they think about incorporating more of this type of work in their daily work or routines? I think to let go of what you think a good voice is or what voices should be like everything we think there's one kind of pretty and one kind of whatever we think there's one kind of good voice that is the thing that we're trying to attain and actually your best voice is just your voice we're not all maria callas some people are macy gray and they're both valid and they're both wonderful so let go of whatever it is you believe love it love it <laughs> mine would probably be to switch your focus from thinking that your uh, whatever apparatus you use, whether it's your voice or a saxophone or whatever instrument you're using to perform with, that there is an instrument prior to that, which is your nervous system. And that that instrument is what people are going to pay you a lot of money to see. No one actually cares about your voice. They're there for your nervous system, True. which is why really awful singers become super famous because no, it's, they're expressing something. They're making you feel something. They are generous with their nervous system. And the other thing I just wanted to mention is that I think everyone would agree, but we're all doing our own work as we're teaching. So we are like, uh, we are, it's not like we figured it out and now we're perfect and we're helping everyone because we figured out how to be a perfect performer, a perfect singer. We actually are like, even I could see all of us adjusting on this podcast of like feeling a little stress and then calming down. And we're, we're working with our systems all the time in the imperfection and the flow of, of, of our existence and We all, all we have is, is some tools that we've learned along the way, but we're no different. Our successes are totally possible for everyone. The access is there for everyone, just like Allison said about singing. And it applies to a lot more than the arts, right? The arts are the vehicle that the three of you have chosen at points. But as Allison has proven in her work, her lessons of what she's learned applies well beyond the world of the arts. 100%. Jenea, your final tip. My final tip would just be um, to try. Just try. Try to sing. 
try voice lessons that try a voice lesson with, you know, with a teacher, try a speaking lesson, just give it a shot, see what happens. Cause I think there's an impact for like what I think it's interesting uh, that I've heard a little bit from a couple of you is like the, these idea that we have heard from the beginning that people got told really early in their age, Oh, you are not, you cannot sing or Allison's experience in a corporate environment being told, Oh, you are the creative one. Right. But I think the other side of that is when you give somebody who does not think that they're a creative person permission to be the singer and you give them these energy that opens up a whole other set of avenues in their life. Totally. Right. And I think that connecting and being creative and maybe thinking about being creative for the joy of being creative and not for what other people's expectations are. Nobody comes to me for voice lessons because they want to be a professional singer. Yeah, exactly. I don't teach professional singers. I have no interest in polishing something to perfection with someone. I'm, I only work with people who just want to connect with something. And that impacts their life beyond their singing once they do that connection, yeah. right? And the other thing is, you know, the ability to express yourself, the ability to make an entire room feel empowered and safe. I mean, I can't imagine in the corporate world, the impact of that in terms of like, things are going sour, your employees are freaking out. Like you could save a huge deal. (laughs) So it's like, yes, it feels creative, but like, there's no there's no question in my mind that millions of dollars are related to your ability to be in your nervous system, command your nervous system, love your nervous system and help other people with theirs that you could become an addict from from my perspective you could become from an adequate leader to an amazing groundbreaking leader. So, yes, it's creative, but Don't think that you can't harness that to make a lot of money. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) As well. I mean. That is totally true. Amen. So I really like the tone that we're at right now, which is a very positive tone. So I'm actually, normally at this stage, I have the question about, you know, corporate expressions that trigger you, but I'm just going to leave that out. And because I look, because I like where we are, and hopefully the people who are listening right now are inspired. Mm. So I'm just going to ask you to share with our listeners one more thing. And I have a at the end of the podcast, I always ask this. I call it food for the soul or food for the body, and people can choose whether they want to share a favorite recipe or a drink, or if they want to go to the food for the soul, a piece of art, a piece of music, a book, or something that has really inspired them. So what is your inspiration for our listeners? My most recent book that I've been just so, so loving is a book by Rupert Spira, who's a non-dual teacher uh, with a book called The Transparency of Things. And it's just uh, an amazing book about just consciousness, where we come from, I always find an inspiration and calmness from just going back to the source of like, who are we actually? <laughs> what are what are we doing here? And his tone is really calming and 
it's a good time to be calm. I find myself constantly to everybody I meet asking if they've seen Shit's Creek. Oh. I was going to say Shit's Creek. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. This is just a, a really slow, gentle burn of a show. You don't quite know what you're getting into. And then six seasons on, they've just won all of the Emmys. It's so wonderful. And for anyone who's looking at growth, emotional growth, just to watch the journey of these characters as their life changes over the course of the, the seasons. And then also I really, really love watching them work and watching interviews with the cast, with uh, Dan and Eugene Levy and, and Catherine O'Hara. And they're just such gorgeous people. And it, what I'm watching is leadership and how to be a family and work as a family. Janae? I was going to say Shit's Creek. So I'll... Uh, which has like been heavenly during this pandemic but um I would say the book um I'm revisiting is The Body Keeps the Score Mm -hmm. and it's I I, I'm gonna say his I'm gonna botch his name it's Bessel van der Kolk it's a profound book and it kind of covers like everything that we've discussed as far as you know the nervous system and, and trauma and the body. And so. Oh, can I add one sure. um, related to Allison's uh, and my and story way back in the beginning of the podcast, talking about our, our bodies saying, no, there's an amazing book by a brilliant trauma specialist named Gabor Mate, who is an incredible addiction specialist, but the book is way more about addiction it's more about when you're not letting your full being um, express itself, love itself, that the body actually starts to revolt. And it's just, I, I think for anybody who's struggling with resistance to their voice or in any way showing up public speaking, it's a fundamental book for just seeing how the body might be negatively reacting so that you don't have to feel so scared about what may be happening to you. And what's the name of the book, Ruby? It's called The Body Says No. Great. Thanks all of you for this fabulous recommendations. I normally do not share my recommendations, but I'm going to make an exception today because um, the three people here are all part of the food for my soul. And so I'm going to recommend one performance each for them. Um, with the understanding, obviously, that uh, Ruby and Janae have a great catalog of music available you can stream it or even better, as usual with independent musician, go find it and buy it either on their website or on Bandcamp. I'm going to start with Allison. And Allison, as she has said and you heard, is no longer performing professionally, which doesn't mean that she does not have the voice of a professional singer. And uh, um, you can find on YouTube, there's a very cool cover. It's called I'm Not Perfect. And I think that it reflects all of her personality and you know, she does a fabulous job singing the song. Um, second, I'm going to go to Ruby uh, and uh, I'm going to recommend a video that's called Freedom Fighter that you can find on YouTube. And that's because it is a very cool video that is done uh, sort of like it brings me back a little bit to the era of MTV for those that are old enough when people tried to really tell a meaningful story with the video that went with the song. And then finally, Janae has a new album out called Disposable Love. And I'm going to pick my favorite song from Disposable Love, 
which is called Solitary People. So thank two to three of you for your wonderful music and thank you for being great guests. Thanks, Dino. Thank you, Dino. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating or a review, tell a friend or more, subscribe, and post about it in social media. You can find Alison on her website, alisonbenley.com, spelled A-L-L-I-S-O-N-B-E-N-N-I-E.com. If you're looking for a creative leadership coach, she's fabulous and I highly recommend her. You can also find her on Instagram at Alison Benny. Once again, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-B-E-N-N-I-E. If you want to learn about Janae's work on voice, holistic healing, and leadership, the website for that is theinnersong.com. T-H-E-I-N-N-E-R-S-O-N-G.com. You can also find her artist site at janaehalstead.com, spelled J-E-N-E-E. H-A-L-S-T-E-A-D.com. You will find Ruby at TheUnstoppablePerformer.com. T-H-E-U-N-S-T-O-P-P-A-B-L-E-P-E-R-F-O-R-M-E-R.com. Her musical website is RubyRoseFox.com. Spelled R-U-B-Y-R-O-S-E-F-O-X.com. Now I will say this one more time. Janae and Ruby's music is available everywhere you normally find your music. So check them out on your favorite streaming platform. And if you like what you hear, please consider buying an album or some merch directly from them, as every sale is really, really important to every independent artist. You can also stick around, because right after this credit, I will play one song by Janae and one song by Ruby. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number 4. So al4ep.com and you can also email me at dino at al4ep.com. You can find the show on Facebook. Just search for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People and you can find it on Instagram and on Twitter and in both places I'm using the same handle and that handle is at al4edp. So find at al4edp. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Dino Catania, with additional production and editing support by the full cast team. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicholas Catania, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, here are the songs by Janae and by Ruby. We start with Solitary People by Janae, followed by Matador by Ruby. Enjoy, and see you on the next show. Bye. You let the dust collect in the mounds You can't let go, so I clean the house Your sisters are calling me out They say it's like cleaning the Titanic before it goes down They don't know when you're coming back They won't tell me where you're at Somebody still needs to feed the cat I left your pictures on the wall They don't know how hard it's been They don't know what the tears
Oh, no.